Let me pray for us. Our loving Father, thank you so much that we are able to hear you speak to us now by your Spirit through your Word. Please teach us. Please show us Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, whenever we engage with the world, our faith is on trial. You know, when we put us an update on social media or discuss scripture at the PNC or invite a friend to visit church. But sometimes our faith will be on trial when we don't even say anything at all. Uh, this week I was quietly sitting in the back of an RFS truck minding my own business uh, when one of the brigade members uh, asked me a question in front of everyone in the truck uh, about what I thought of the Religious Freedoms Bill. Uh, I, sure, I, I get paid by the Anglican Church to talk about Jesus, but uh, sometimes it's just a bit disarming when you're not really in the headspace right at that very moment to defend what's happening in Canberra about religious freedom and attorney generals and all that sort of stuff. But fortunately, I was able to string through a few words and we talked about this and talked about that and got to the point where I was able to say that when one thing led to another, Israel Folau, you know, there's conversations, they sort of go everywhere. And then it's like, well, what did you think about what Israel Folau said about about God's judgment and things like that. I said, well, you know, when Jesus was asked a similar question, he said that when we see natural disasters like these, it's a reminder that we need to repent. So that's what Jesus said. And the people in the truck sort of said, oh, yeah, okay. And we, the conversation changed and we moved on. I, I was just sitting there minding my own business and we were talking about the need to repent. Praise the Lord that he got some words out of my mouth. <laughs> But the point is that anywhere, anytime, our faith can be on trial. But it's one thing for us to be answering a few tricky questions in a few random places. But imagine if you were actually in a courtroom with a judge. That's exactly the situation that the Apostle Paul is in as we look at his trials in a place called Caesarea Maritima. As we look at Acts chapter 24, 25 and 26. So this is the second last talk on the book of Acts. Uh, it's number 17 out of 18. And we've seen this whole journey of how the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven, he set the whole place on fire with the gospel and it's burning and it's spreading and it's exciting. But there are some roadblocks along the way, including the fact that Paul's now in prison. Uh, it is a riveting story today, and if you like courtroom drama and political novels and movies, you're going to like today. It's really quite interesting. Uh, if you find those things boring, I think you're still going to find them exciting, to this one at least. Because uh, as we look at this, uh, we're going to be inspired to stand up for the truth of our faith when we also are un un under fire and we'll see the way that God's word can impact even the hardest hearts. And we'll see some pretty hard hearts today, trust me. Well, it begins now with Apostle Paul in protective custody in Caesarea Maritima, which is a, a coastal city. It's about an hour's drive from modern-day Tel Aviv. It's 120 k's from Jerusalem if you drove on the road. So think about it. It's kind of like from, from driving from here to the, uh, to the north shore of Sydney in distance. But they didn't drive in cars. They had to go on horses. So it's a fair hike, really, from Jerusalem to to Caesarea Maritima, and Paul is in a maximum security prison. And he's there because hundreds of Jews want him dead. We read last week about the riot that these Jews caused that led the whole of Jerusalem into chaos. And it was all because they really wanted him killed. They wanted him shut up for what he was saying about Jesus that was causing such controversies. And so the Romans stepped in. 
it says in the Bible that they worried that, that they'd actually tear Paul apart, rip him to shreds, and so they grabbed him and put him in custody and sent him off to Caesarea. All Paul wanted to do was talk about Jesus, and all they wanted to do was to shut him up. And so the question we've got today is, how is it that the Romans, who have got him under protective custody over in Caesarea Maritima, how are they going to, to deal with him in a way that keeps peace with the Jews? It's a really unholy kind of awkward truce there. And how is he going to be dealt with, the Apostle Paul, in, in such a way that recognises he's a Roman citizen and he's, he's allowed to have a fair trial? He deserves it. And what's more, how are we going to learn how we should act today in, in modern Jamboree when we too face trials of many kinds? Well, we kick off in chapter 24, verse 1. We read that five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the, law, and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. What do they do? Well, the Jews bring a top-gun lawyer to attack Paul. And now the trial begins. Tertullus, the lawyer, does his very best to try and butter up the governor, who is basically acting like the, the, the judge in the court. It's, it, to be honest, it's almost nauseating. He starts in verse 2b. Oh, you have provided a long period of peace for us Jews, and with foresight you have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you, but I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. In, in what he's about to say, basically, here is, well, he says, You're awesome, and we are very busy, and you're very busy, so let's just convict this guy fast and we can get out of here. But with that in mind, he then puts the case to. Verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker who's constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. And furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. And then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything the turtle has said was true. One half-truth after another. Paul didn't stir up the riots, the Jews did. And Paul wasn't desecrating the temple, he was just turning up to pray. It's a stitch-up. And with that, verse 10, we read that the governor then motioned for Paul to speak. And Paul said... I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defence before you. And his defence begins in verse 11. He says, You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. He says, it's all trumped up charges. However, I admit that I follow the way which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. Paul's strategy at this point is to actually do the opposite of creating a wedge. He actually wants to say that he has a lot in common with the Jews. These Romans from the outside are trying to work out what all the biff's about and he's saying, listen, I... We're really we're all singing from the same song sheet here. And what's more, verse 15, he says, I have the same hope in God that these men have, 
that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul basically says, you know, I've got a supernatural belief in the resurrection of the dead. And what's more, there is something to be said for, for knowing whether you're righteous or unrighteous. Our status before God really, really matters. And so, verse 16, he says, Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. His point is that how we live before God and others really matters. Uh, we, we can't just live like your behaviour affects nobody else and it doesn't affect God. That's the point that Paul is making here. And he makes the claim in front of the governor and in the hearing of the Jews. He, he believes in his conscience that the only thing that he can do is follow Jesus. To do anything else is to go against his conscience. And now he defends himself against the accusations that he's a rioter and a defiler because he says, after several years away, verse 17, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd around me and no rioting. He's basically saying, what they said is a lie. And if you want to know the truth, go and get some eyewitness, he says. But some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish High Council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. See, the problem is that the actual eyewitnesses aren't even there in the courtroom. It's just a case of, well, I know someone who said something, who said someone said someone. It's like, really? You bring here your high top-end lawyer who just says, well, I know someone who knew so-one. I was like, really? And so they adjourned the trial, and rightly so. And we read in verse 23 that Governor Felix ordered an officer to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him and take care of his needs. It's like, let's keep protecting him, but really he doesn't have... There isn't a, a, a case against him, really. Which means that Felix, the governor, kept Paul locked up without evidence. Paul should be free. Everyone can see that he's not guilty, but they keep him locked up. But Felix doesn't just leave him locked up alone. Felix actually wants to go and visit him. Why would he want to go and visit him personally? I reckon it might have something to do with the fact that Paul spoke of conscience and about righteousness. And I just got this feeling that Felix may well have wanted to know a bit more about this faith that, that had captured Paul in such a dramatic way. And so, verse 24, we read that a few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. It's a nice little story. The governor and his wife come along and want to hear Paul talk about Jesus. But we need to realise that Felix was a very nasty piece of work. Uh, one Roman historian described him as, quote, a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was a nasty piece of work. 
And Drusilla is his third wife and he's her second husband. And the story of what brought them together is, well, it would fit beautifully in the tabloid press. And yet Felix and Drusilla want to sit down and listen to Paul talk about Christianity. What's Paul going to say? I reckon if I was Paul, I'd be tempted to think, I'm sick of prison food, I just want to get out of here. I'll say some really nice things and then I'll be let out because, after all, Felix is the guy who can get me released. And so when Felix sort of says, well, what do you think God thinks of me? Paul could have said, oh, well, you know, oh, well, to each his own, any cliche he wanted, just can you get the keys, please? But instead we read, verse 25, that he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment. Uh, All guns blazing. See, firstly, Paul spoke about righteousness. He talked about the need to be right, to be justified in God's sight. This is the most important thing. It's not whether you're guilty or not guilty before a secular court. It's whether you're guilty or not guilty before Jesus. And Paul, locked up there before the governor, made it clear. Secondly, he talked about self-control, which is presumably something that Felix and Drusilla could learn a little bit about. Maybe a difficult thing to talk about with Paul around, but he brought it up. And thirdly, he talked about the coming day of judgment saying, you really want to see a courtroom? You really want to see when people are accountable for what they've done in this life and whether they've made friends with Jesus before they die? Well, it is coming. I stand in awe of Paul. He's a man of convictions. He knows the need to tell the truth, even when it's difficult. It's a little bit like how you know maybe Paul knows that Felix and Drusilla have spiritual cancer. And they tell him and her that the only way that they can have that spiritual cancer cured is to come to Jesus. How do you think that Felix would respond to that? Would he be angry? How dare you speak to me about that and offend me in front of my wife? He could have done that. Or do you think he might be dismissive of him? It's like, Yeah, yeah, you religious nuts, yeah, whatever, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Well, how did he respond? Well, we read in the second half of verse 25, Felix became frightened. Felix was frightened when he heard God's word. It's an unusual experience when you come into the... Well, it's not really. People fear God all the time when they come in face-to-face with him and recognise the reality of their sins. There was another guy a little bit earlier on in the book of Acts who was frightened in a similar circumstance. It was the Philippian jailer. Chapter 16, verse 29, we read that the jailer fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? See, the right response when you tremble before the word of God is salvation. That is the response that Felix and Drusilla should have had right at that moment. Terrified about the coming judgment. What must I do to be saved? This is the right response 
for anyone when they come into the presence of God. I wonder if that's what happened to you when you came into the presence of God and you understood about the coming judgment. I wonder if you felt a little bit scared as to whether you've actually got your eternal affairs in order. Are you actually right with God? Are you judgment ready? Because if you did have that fear and it led you to say, I trust in Jesus as Lord, I know him as my saviour, then no sweat. And that's what you'd hope that Felix would do. Fear that would lead him to respond that way. But instead, verse 25c, he said, go away for now. When it's more convenient, I'll call for you again. Felix had this moment of fear. He shook in his boots. He came face to face with the reality that he was under God's judgment. The Spirit of God came to him. And what does he do? He shuts the door on the Spirit of God, turns Paul the Apostle away. Right now, if you are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit to turn to Jesus and repent and be saved, if you have never done it before, you need to do it now because when he's here, you need to respond. What did Felix do? Nah, I'm scared, go away. It was a bad mistake. If you're feeling that conviction and you've not responded yet to Jesus, to give you a certainty for eternity, you've got to do it now because he might come this afternoon. You just don't know. But there was another reason that Felix sort of pushed Paul away and kept him locked up, and that is verse 26. After finding that Felix sent Paul away, what did he do? Well, we read that he'd also hoped that Paul would bribe him so we sent for him quite often and talked with him. Hey, you going, Paul? Uh, oh, sorry, shaking your hand. <laughs> so he wanted to have his palms greased. He wanted to have some sort of kickback for, so to get him out of jail. He doesn't like the news of the gospel. He'd rather like the, a little bit of currency, if you wouldn't mind. And it went on for two years. So all Felix wanted was a bribe in all of this. And so he kept... Paul locked up for 365 days, 365 more. That's a lot of days to be locked up when you know you're innocent. And then, verse 27, we read that after two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favour with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison for all those two years. Paul was innocent. And yet he was treated as a criminal. It's clear to everybody in that first courtroom that he's done nothing to deserve it. And yet he's locked up. You're surprised that a follower of Jesus would be treated that way, though innocent? Shouldn't be surprised. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. You follow Jesus, who was innocent yet condemned. The followers get the same treatment. And so it was with Paul. 
Well, the trial with Felix wasn't the only one that Paul would go through in Caesarea. Now we meet the next guy, Festus. After Festus started his new job, he went up to Jerusalem to chat with the Jews. The Jews said, hey, any chance you could bring Paul up here to us? And Felix and Festus is like, no, you should come back down here. That's where the action is. Okay, Jews were pretty cranky at that because they wanted to assassinate Paul again, but that didn't work. And so they head back down two years later again into Caesarea Maritima, there on the coast, to have another trial. But before that, Festus says to Paul, by the way, mate, how would you feel about going up to Jerusalem for a trial? To which Paul said, no. Verse 10, this is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried right here. You know very well I'm not guilty of harming the Jews. Not guilty, you know it. If I've done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I'm innocent as I am, no one has a right to turn me over to these men who are going to kill me. Let's face it, really. And so he says these four key words, I appeal to Caesar. What happens at this point is very significant because right now he appeals to Caesar. He basically says, I want to take my case all the way to the top. I want to be taken to Rome to testify before the Caesar, the very, very top emperor, the top of the lot. It's funny, isn't it? Because Jesus said that Paul would go to Rome and it turns out that he's going to get a special escort to get there. Well, Festus has got a problem because now he's got to do a bit of paperwork and he's got to write down exactly what it is that Paul wants to appeal to Caesar for because he knows that he's innocent. And well, what am I sending him off here for? Oh, boy, this is going to, this paperwork, this paperwork. I know what I'll do. Basically, he gets his advisors together and he says, okay, well, can we do this? And say, yes. So Festus says to Paul, very well, you've appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. We'll have to do this thing. And so they do. They get all ready to work out exactly what they're going to say with the paperwork that's going to accompany Paul as he heads off to Rome. But before that happens, they've got to get a group of people together to work out exactly what it is that he's guilty of. And it turns out that there's some pretty high-powered people who are going to meet together for this little bit of a conference. And it includes a gentleman by the name of King Agrippa II. What do we know about King Agrippa? Well, it's worth having a bit of background to him. Uh, his great-grandfather was King Herod, who in the first Christmas ordered the murder of all the male children. His granduncle was the guy who murdered John the Baptist. And his father executed James, the disciple, and also imprisoned Peter. And this is the same guy who was happy for people to worship him as God and then had his guts eaten up by worms. Remember that from a few chapters before. So King Agrippa turns on up, and we know that he comes from a long line of Christian haters. What's going to happen? Well, as they say, but wait, there's more. We also meet his sister, Bernice. Turns out he had a very close relationship with his sister, Bernice, uh, this is not his half-sister or his stepsister. This is his biological sister, who was also his lover. As one commentator said of this couple, Agrippa and Bernice were a sick, sin-infested couple. Yes, that's right. 
Uh, so much so that the Romans said that he was immoral. And that's saying something. So now Agrippa and his sister, uh, Bernice, turn on up to a special hearing of Paul. And it's going to be run by Festus, the governor, and also King Agrippa and a bunch of others. In fact, it was quite a show. We read in verse 23 that the next day Agrippa and Bernice arrived at the auditory with great pomp, accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city, and Festus orders that Paul be brought in. You, you th- there would have been so much colour, the, the purple robes of King Agrippa and the, and the red robes of the governor and all of the fancy military uniforms and everything like that, all gathered there in front of Paul, who was there as a smelly prisoner. Nothing impressive at all. And Paul is asked to come forward. The reason they're there is that they can't work out why Paul's guilty. <laughs> they can't work out why he's there. And it turns out they get quite a few people to try and work it out. And so Paul begins by responding in this way. Verse 4, As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfilment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. It's a great line. He says, I am just like the Jews, and in fact, I am doing exactly what they should be doing. And they're the ones who've dragged me here, wasting your time. He basically says that everything that was promised in the Old Testament has come true in Jesus, and I am living proof of that. And at that point, having had his first wonderful opening, he comes back with with an absolute cracker of a line. I love this line. You want to put someone on the front foot. Look at listen to what he says, verse 8. He says. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? I, I reckon sometimes we're a bit scared to go hard like that, with like the Apostle Paul. I think we're scared to speak about the supernatural. We're just a little bit ashamed of the supernatural because the scientists and the philosophers and the social commentators think that We're idiots, basically. Oh, you believe in all that supernatural stuff. Really? You believe in prayer. (laughs) Life after death? Yeah, right. People think that we're nuts. But why? Because it's only the last few centuries that people have been trashing the supernatural. It's only a relatively new thing. And so I think I quite like Paul's response, even for today. Why does it seem incredible to you that God answers prayer? Why does it seem incredible to you that God heals our sicknesses? Why does it seem incredible to you that God forgives us completely? Why does it seem incredible to you that God can raise the dead? 
Maybe that's a line I need to have ready when I'm sitting in the back of, of Jamboree 1. Oh, you know, why does it seem incredible to you? And so with that in mind, Paul then gives a third long account of when Paul met him on the road to Damascus. We're going to skip most of it because he's done it in two other bits. Obviously, Luke wants us to see this as being really at the heart of the whole of the book of Acts. But anyway, he then gets to the point where he wants to quote Jesus in front of this whole room of all of this purple and red and stuff. And he basically says that this is what Jesus said to Paul. Jesus said to Paul, Now get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. I reckon it's a pretty powerful message just from Jesus to Paul. But as it's quoted here in this courtroom, this kangaroo court, it just has that extra bit of power, I think. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not worried about what will happen here because I already know that Jesus will rescue me. Jesus has already promised it, so I have no fear. And what's more, as Jesus said to Paul by implication, everyone in that room needs to hear that they need to have their eyes opened and they need to turn from darkness to light and they need to turn from Satan to God. That is the situation they are in. And, of course, it's the situation for everyone here in Jamboree as well. And even in this room, if you're not sure, if you've turned to light and come to God, then you must do it, as Jesus has said. But what's the return? What's the result of becoming a Christian? I'm not going to ask you to do that. Put your hands up in the air. Why is it that you become a Christian? Why is it that people should become Christians? What did Jesus say? It's really interesting. He said basically that you get forgiveness and you get a place in God's family. I don't reckon I would have written that down if I was sitting in your seat and the preacher got you to write something down and say what the answer was to the question. I'd say maybe forgiveness of sin and hope in eternity or something. What does he say? Jesus actually says they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place amongst God's people. That is the cash value of coming to Christ. And with all these things in mind, Paul then goes on to talk about how he obeyed Jesus and how it got him into the right and all that kind of stuff. But then skipping forward a whole lot of verses, he says in verse 22, But God has protected me right up to this present time, so I can testify to everyone here from the least, your majesty, to the greatest, your majesty. I teach nothing except what the prophets of Moses would have had happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and in this way announce God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. He's saying, I'm not making this up. I'm just doing what's in accord with the promises of the Old Testament. And it just seems to make a whole lot of sense. And so sometimes when you're confronted with such brilliant logic and, and such firm evidence and a clear defence, 
what is the most logical, what is the most reasonable thing that you can do to respond to it if you don't like it? Verse 24, Festus shouted, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. You're just an idiot. It's not the first time I've heard a defence like that against someone who's made some sense. In fact, it's not a bad memory verse for HSC students as well, but that's another thing. See, Paul is accused of being a crazy academic, but he says, verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things, don't you, King Agrippa? I speak boldly, for I'm sure these events are all familiar to King Agrippa, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, you're still awake? Uh, Do you believe the prophets? I, I know you do. The thing about King Agrippa is that he has a special role with the Jews, and this is why Paul now focuses on him. Paul now focuses on King Agrippa because he's got the job of appointing the high priest of the Jews, this guy who's the most immoral man you can imagine. And he's also the guy who has control over the temple finances. He knows a thing or two about Judaism. And so Paul now knows this and points to him. What do you think? And King Agrippa says, verse 28, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? (laughs) It's a beauty, isn't it? He's now going to deflect it back and say, you're just trying to evangelize me. Well, yeah, basically true. And Paul says, verse 29, well, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. He says, I want you to join me as a follower of Jesus. What guts did Paul have? He could have just said nothing. But he was there all guns blazing, evangelizing the most powerful people around. And in fact, he says, Paul, that he prays for them. He prays for everyone in the room, which includes, of course, his enemies who want to have him killed. Paul prays that every person would become a Christian. He's not the first person to pray for his enemies. It's just what Jesus did. And so with this, the passage closes. And we read that the king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. And as they went out, they talked it over and agreed, this man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. What's he locked up here for? And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And now I've got to do all this paperwork to try and tell tell Caesar why he's guilty when we know he's not. Oh, boy. And that's the end of the story. Why did he appeal to Caesar? Well, it's so that Caesar could hear what Agrippa heard and Bernice, the sordid couple, and Festus, and all of the top brass, and everybody gathered there. Paul's faith has been on trial in the most extreme case, and as he's been there in his trial, he has been evangelising, which is just a technical word for saying that he's talking about the good news of Jesus. He can't keep it to himself. He's on a mission from God. And as he did that, we see finally that he cared for his hearers, not himself. 
like the innocent Lord Jesus. Paul has given up his own rights. Even though he is innocent, he is convicted and held up as a criminal. And so we must follow Paul as he follows Christ. Let me pray. Our loving Father, we ask now that we might indeed follow the example of Paul and stand up for Jesus at every single right. And we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you appeared to Paul, that you did not give up your mission to die for the ungodly, to pray for your enemies, to die for your enemies. And we ask that we might follow you even as our faith is on trial. Amen.